Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The Bakersfield 3 is proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. The Monday after James Colstead's murder was a busy day for me at work. My assignment was to cover a particularly deadly weekend in Bakersfield, where within a 24-hour period, three separate shootings took the lives of four people. I started out that morning going to an area of town where historically shootings happen semi-often. In the front yard of a small home, a young man and a young woman had been shot. They weren't a couple, but maybe on their way to be. They were just getting to know each other, really, when gunshots rang out, killing both of them. Now their two families were learning about each other in the worst way imaginable. Afterwards, my photographer and I headed to the second shooting location. It was outside a home in a different neighborhood, but one that was still no stranger to crime particularly gang violence. There I did the most dreaded thing a crime reporter will ever do. I went and knocked on the door of the house where the murder took place, and inside was the victim's family. I remember when the door opened, I could see how dark it was, crowded with people who were almost in a zombie-like state of grief. But my knock at the door had awoken the anger inside of them. As the bright light from the outside shone in their eyes, they had a look of disbelief that I was there, that I would try to speak with them when the death of their loved one was still so fresh. I remember hearing screams to get out, but before I could, a young man from the back of the room began to lunge at me before older men inside grabbed him and tried to hold him back. The pain in his eyes was so raw, I'll never forget it. Even though that day I felt like the furthest thing from an ally to the grieving family, later on I built a relationship with the victim's father. He explained to me that the young man who charged at me was his son and the twin brother of the murder victim. They were only 16 years old when they were hanging out that Saturday night in their front yard when someone drove by and opened fire. One twin was killed quickly. His identical brother, who was also shot, laid there next to him, screaming for help, begging for his brother to hold on as he watched him slip away. The day I came to their door, the twin brother still had a bullet in his leg that hadn't been removed yet. 
After that experience, I vowed to find a more respectful way to do my job without further traumatizing victims' loved ones. By the time my photographer and I got to the third shooting location where James was killed, the afternoon hours were getting away from us and we had a deadline to make. We needed to make it quick, but as soon as we arrived to the neighborhood, we both sort of said, huh, the scene felt very different than most. 17's Olivia LaVoyce reports tonight two of the homicides took place in areas where crime is not uncommon. But in one case, murder is the last thing anyone expected to see in their neighborhood. It's a quiet, safe neighborhood and all the neighbors look out for each other. Here's James's mom, Di. You would never suspect like that James, when you drive through that neighborhood, think that somebody was shot and killed there. You know, you just wouldn't dream of it. The neighborhood was quiet and considered safe, particularly the cul-de-sac James Colstead was driving out of when he was shot through his car numerous times. The homes were big and occupied almost exclusively by families, except for one. Though the house was large and nice from the outside like others, inside the things going on were quite different. It was almost like a metaphor for James's life at the time of his murder. A lot of people told me that to the outside world, James had it all together and then some, that he worked hard to give off that image. But inside, everything was not okay. I'm Olivia LaVoice, and this is The Bakersfield Three. He was just always bright and cheerful and mischievous sometimes as a little boy. That's his mom, Di, again. All the girls loved him. He was tall and handsome, um, loved surfing. At 6'5", James had big blue eyes and sort of an effortless coolness to him. But the laid-back surfer was just a small part of him. His mind was always going 100 miles an hour. James had a lot of ideas, ideas for different inventions. He loved thinking and designing and making new things, which led to a couple of his products and patents. One of James' inventions came from his love of skateboarding and video games. On one of the games, flames would shoot out of the skateboard, so James decided to make that a reality and designed a board with wheels that would create a spark when grinded into the pavement. Another one of his inventions was a special baby bib to help reduce the mess when feeding your little one. He loved creating things, and it made him good money. In his 20s, he bought a condo on the beach in an upscale area of San Diego. He split his time between there and Bakersfield. But perhaps the most significant event in his early adult life was falling in love for the first time. Her name was Amber. That was kind of love at first sight for both of them. As his mother, Di, puts it, James had met his match. Very jealous of each other's beauty. Amber gave James a run for his money. You know, he was tall, she was tall, and she was fiery. And they they would fight and then make up and fight and make up. 
Like so many young lovers, they were consumed by their relationship. It was passionate with highs and lows and moved quickly, especially when Amber found out she was pregnant. Amber and James welcomed a baby girl and were building a life together. They were engaged and soon to be married. Until one Saturday morning, they had an argument. They were supposed to attend her friend's wedding together. He didn't go. And that was the last time he saw her. After the argument, Amber went to the wedding alone. On her way home to James and their baby, she got into an accident. Amber's death sent James into a tailspin. I would have to say that was the first time that I really noticed that he was consuming alcohol. I think he probably stayed drunk for the first year and then brought himself out of that to where he wasn't drinking at all. Undoubtedly what, or rather who, helped him out of the tailspin was his baby girl, Cameron. He was my best friend, but I also was his best friend. Cameron split her time living with her dad and her maternal grandmother after her mother died. She said life with her dad was always an adventure. I know this is sound the wrong way, but my dad was just really cool. Like, he was just really, really cool. And I know that sounds cheesy, but, like, he was really cool. And he was a surfer, and I just looked at him with awe. Like, I looked at him like he could do no wrong. I mean, he really was my best friend. Her loved ones will tell you, Cameron should be most well-known for her amazing heart, her beauty on the inside. But when people see her for the first time, it's hard to not focus on her looks. She has her mother Amber's long strawberry blonde hair, slender figure, her height comes from both her parents, and her full lips and green bluish eyes are from her father James. Her striking looks were tough for him to handle. I remember the first bikini picture I posted. He was like calling everybody, tell her to take that down, she can't do that. And I was like, Dad, I'm 14 years old. <laughs> and at the time I really felt like I was adult. And he was like, yeah, no, that's not happening. And then into high school, I started obviously looking more and more like an adult. And no, he couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle it. Nope. Cameron remembers one night in particular, not long after her 16th birthday. I think he had cooked dinner. Um, we ate. And then I get up and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go hang out with my friends. I think we're going to go to a party. Mind you, my dad, to me, is like the coolest person in the world. So it wasn't really like I asked. I more just said I was going to go. And he was like, no, you're not. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm not. Well, first of all, you're not going anywhere looking like that. Second of all, because I said so. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going. I will come back later. <laughs> he was like, because my dad had never told me no before. Are you kidding me? Like I said, everything was a vacation. Everything was like candy for dinner. Okay. Like he didn't care. So for, I'm like, oh, so now, now you care. He's like, well, you know, we're spending the weekend together. I'm like, no, I'm going. Got into a huge yelling match, but like just me yelling. He's laughing. And when someone's laughing at you when you're yelling, it makes you furious. And that memory is just one of the best memories because what I would give to scream at him. Like, looking back, it was so parent-like and I didn't get much of that growing up. 
that's what I want. Like if I could have him back for five more minutes, I'd probably spend it yelling at him, but in the best, most loving way possible because it just meant so much to me to be able to have, I'm like, oh, he is my dad. He's my best friend, but he is my father first and he's just looking out for me. He cared about me deeply. Everyone agrees that what James was most proud of in life was being a father. He took a lot of pride in being his daughter's best friend. He was also very proud of his career, his dedication to his health and fitness. But James also had a secret. He was a very private person. He didn't want you to know that he was down. He was going to, as people would say, suck it up and present to public everything is, everything's great. When actuality, it wasn't. James' mom, Di, was one of the first people after James's brothers to find out what was going on. One of the most difficult things that I had early on was admitting in public that James had a substance abuse problem. James, on that aspect, would have been mortified because he tried so hard to not let people know because that wasn't him because he was into health and happiness and and being addicted to opiates, he did not want people to know. Di is talking about it now for a few reasons. One, she wants people to know what happened to James could happen to anyone. She also knows it undoubtedly played a role in his murder. I don't think his addiction started until he was hit by a car on his birthday. The story of his addiction started out like so many others, being seriously injured and as a result prescribed opioids to manage the pain. Dai says when it was time for doctors to wean him off of the high dose of painkillers, it would make James feel like the pain from his accident was back and worse than ever. But really it was his body suffering from withdrawal. What he explained to me was he was just trying to feel normal to get, you know, as his addiction progressed just to be able to function during the day. Di says James didn't want anyone to know about the painkillers. To the public, he kept up his image of being a health nut with lots of exercising and clean eating. And so that was the contradiction. The opiates definitely aren't a clean substance to put in your body. So he was trying to counteract that with how he took care of himself. A lot of people never knew that James was struggling. But in time, Cameron, his daughter, could tell something was different. This is how Cameron says she thought of her dad for most of her life. He loved to be seen, loved the way he looked. He loved himself. And in the most not cocky way possible, he never treated anyone bad, you know, but he was just a love. He was just a love. He was a love to love. And he loved to love like it was amazing but in the last year of his life Cameron says suddenly he wasn't as social he wasn't doing the things he was passionate about he just wasn't him it was like drugs have a hold on you that much all the things you love to do like you're selling you're selling your toys like your surfboards and your skateboards what I just I can't and I still don't understand. This man was so adventurous and fearless. And so for him to throw that all away, 
I could never imagine. You know, I just, drugs are horrible. I mean, they are that bad. They will turn the best people into the saddest. And then, then there's no way out. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project. And every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister, Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for the year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions such as are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover? And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Today, many of us understand addiction is an illness, a battle that only people in it can truly understand. But until really learning about the opioid crisis, I still thought of the root of drug abuse as starting with a choice, a choice to try drugs, whether you intend to become addicted or not. It might seem harsh because it insinuates that addicts put themselves in that situation. But I think it's comforting in a way for people to explain it like that because it makes us feel in control. It makes us feel like so long as we make what our parents and teachers consider good choices and not try addictive drugs, that we'll be okay. It makes it seem simple. But there are millions of people in the United States hooked on the most addictive and dangerous drugs who never understood they were making a choice to try something that would ultimately make them addicts. People like James, like Micah, who simply took pills their doctors said would alleviate their pain. Because James had been successful and so driven from a young age, many people who knew James for a long time have told me it's still hard to wrap their minds around that he battled addiction. It's like his mom puts it, it's such a contradiction to the happy, healthy, driven person they knew. Somebody else, I love and who was also my best friend is still affected by this, which is Ryan. Perhaps no one understands the contradiction the drugs created in James, like his brother Ryan. James and I were always, you know, always together. Their mother, Di, has a set of twin boys who are not Ryan and James. But if you asked people who her twins were, many would probably assume it was the two of them. 
a lot of people would confuse us for each other. And a couple of times I looked through pictures and I was like, I don't remember taking that picture and then actually realized, wait a minute, that's not me, that's James. It wasn't just their looks. It was their mutual interests, their fierce bond, and their desire to keep up appearances and block out any struggles. And they both found themselves in the same struggle at the same time. That's how my addiction started. You know, it started with a prescription. Together, the brothers struggled with opioid addiction. Both used together, both tried to hide it from others together as much as possible. But after James's murder, appearances stopped mattering to Ryan. I've been on this, this, this fucking self-destructive. I don't care, you know, if I live or die. Since this has happened, my whole life is fucking gone. I'm like, I'm never going to get it back. My brother is gone, like the closest person to me. The number one closest person to me. Since that night, Ryan says he spent much of his time trying to numb himself from the pain while also trying to remember key details he says he just can't, as he was there the night his brother was murdered. The day started out with Ryan being at someone's house, a local chiropractor, in the nice neighborhood where crime rarely occurs. Yeah, the only reason why I would hang out with that chiropractor would be just to, you know, just to do drugs and get high, you know? The chiropractor was also someone who, despite, at one point, seeming to have it all together, owning a nice home and his own practice, began using opioids. Ryan was at the chiropractor's house that day with a woman named Sarah, not the Sarah who was friends with Bailey and started dating Matt Queen, the Sarah that Micah was hanging out with before he disappeared. We're calling her Sarah G. In the next clip, you'll hear Ryan mention Sarah G and his friend Rick, I genuinely had an interest in Sarah. Like I said, when we first met her, I was like, oh, who's that? And then uh, Rick was just quick to like cling on to her. And then she she had called me or texted me for something. And then Rick kind of got it like, hey, man, what's my girl? I'm like, oh, it's your girl, dude? Like, fucking, okay, well, go for it, man. Like, don't get mad at me. Sometime after Sarah G. and Rick first coupled up, things fizzled out, and she started hanging out with Micah. Now, a couple weeks after Micah was last heard from, Sarah G. was at the chiropractor's house with Ryan. Ryan says that's when the chiropractor brought up his brother James. And then he got really irritated and said that, you know, I don't want your brother coming by here and this and that. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll tell him. You know, just kind of in one ear and out the other. Ryan says he and James had been arguing and weren't talking that day, so he had no intentions of inviting James over. But the chiropractor continued to seem on edge about it. He was, like, pacing the, his house upstairs, downstairs, outside, inside. And on the phone with whom I don't I don't know. And then, again, you know, your brother's calling, saying he's coming by. And then... At one point, then it was like, okay, now he's really aggravated that Sarah's there. I mean, she'd been there pretty much the entire time we were there, but now it was time for her to, to leave. So I'm the only one with the vehicle. So naturally, you know, it's time for me to take her to wherever she has to go. So when we were leaving, James was outside. This is where things get a little convoluted and hard to follow. 
We don't know why the chiropractor suddenly didn't want Sarah G at his house, but apparently that was the situation. Ryan says when he walked outside, he saw his brother James outside the chiropractor's house after the chiropractor had made it very clear he didn't want James coming over. Ryan says initially, he and James didn't say anything to each other. Ryan got in his car and started driving with Sarah G, but she couldn't give him clear directions on where she wanted to go. And then Ryan says, Sarah G apparently dialed 911 and quickly hung up multiple times, which then he chalked up to her being high on drugs. Confused and annoyed, Ryan circled back around and drove to the chiropractor's house. James was still there, just standing in the driveway. Ryan asked him if he knew where the house was that Sarah G wanted to get dropped off at. And he said, yeah, it's just down, you know, down the street, hang a right and hang a left. So I said, all right, thanks. And I started backing up and leaving. And he said, I don't know if you're going to be here tonight, if you're going to be here later on tonight, but things are going to get real ugly. And that was the last thing that he said. I asked Ryan if he had warned James at any point that the chiropractor said he better not come to his house that night. I think I may have said something along the lines like, oh, he doesn't want you here, you know. And he was more or less like, oh, I'm not trying to hang out here. I just want to, you know, conclude my business. He owed him money, and he was just wanting to collect. He gave him a check, and he owed him for that. For Why did James give him a check? Because he has a business account. Business accounts can process third-party checks, you know, as long as they're endorsed. As someone who doesn't cover white-collar crime, this took me a minute to get. Here's James's friend Jeremy, who breaks it down pretty well. And they were using his chiropractor business to cash fraudulent checks that James was getting. So James would steal these checks and then take them to this chiropractor guy, and the chiropractor guy would deposit them into his business account, and cash them. Here's Ryan again. They had mailbox keys and access to incoming, outgoing mail. That's what they were doing. That's what this, yeah, that's this whole thing is uh, is over, is, is, is greed, it's money, it's, you know, credit cards and checks. The name of the game was apparently to go through people's mail to try to find checks. Evidently from there, the chiropractor would cash them through his business, and then they'd split it. When I spoke to a longtime friend of James about this and his involvement in the stolen checks, she told me it couldn't be right. The whole mail fraud, I I was shocked. I thought he looked down on stuff like that. That was Jessica. You might recognize her voice because in addition to being close friends with James, she was also good friends with Bailey. Jessica and others told me it seemed unimaginable that James would be involved in anything like this. Now back to that night. After James gave Ryan directions, Ryan left to take Sarah G to where she wanted to go. I dropped her off, and then on my way back, um, my phone rang, and it's, uh, the chiropractor, and he's all, like, worked up, and he's like, oh, your brother's here. And I'm like, well, my brother's been there, dude, you know? And uh, he's like, yeah, my brother's here, and my boys are on their way, and this and that. And I'm like, I do calm down. You know, I'm taking care of everything. I just dropped Sarah off, and I'm on my way back. And as a matter of fact, I'm coming into your neighborhood right now, and James is already leaving. Ryan says as he pulled into the cul-de-sac. 
I did note that there was a car parked with its headlights on. He says all he can remember is that it was a silver sedan. He says he saw James's car pull behind it. And out of my peripheral, as I was turning left, it seemed like James was starting to pull out from behind that car as if he was going to follow me and see where I'm going. Brian says he was pulling out of the cul-de-sac and down into another part of the neighborhood. And then once I got around the corner, then I, I heard what, you know, was gunshots, but it didn't sound like a typical pop, pop, pop. You know, it was like a, an echoing sound. The sound wasn't just gunshots. It was James crashing his car after it was struck by several bullets. I just left my car in the middle of the street and got out and, you know, grabbed James. And I was like trying to tell him, get up. I was like, get up. And he wasn't, he looked like he was lost. Like he kept looking around like he was lost. And you'd think with all me, like jerking him by his hand and calling his name that he would have immediately, you know, responded, but he didn't. And then when he finally did, uh, he looked at me and, and he, he didn't take his eyes off me. And he had this look like he was scared, like, and he wasn't scared for for him. It looked more like he was scared for me because he knew who who shot him. His brother Ryan called and said, Mom, hurry. You need to come quick. And the police had it roped off about a half a block away. And I just went crazy started screaming. I wanted to get through. I wanted to get to him. By the time Di got to the scene with her other son, Stephen, it was total chaos. I tried to get through the caution tape. I remember the police officer um, telling Stephen he needed to try to control me. Um, I think I, they would probably would have arrested me. Um, Stephen bear hugged me and just held me as tight as he could just kept saying, Mom, calm down. It's going to be okay. You know, and I just couldn't breathe. Could barely stand up. It was just, my head was spinning, kind of like it's starting to do now. I just wanted to get to him, hold him. At this moment, Di and Ryan were both having the same thought. I never dreamed that it would kill him. You know, I knew there was the possibility, but when I got there, I expected him to still be alive. I mean, James has been through so much. I mean, he's been through a lot of, uh, you know, injuries, I guess you would say, and has always came out, you know, on top. So I didn't think in my mind at all that this is a life-threatening situation. Ryan continued to try to get James to speak, to stand up, but he couldn't. James just continued to stare into Ryan's eyes. When I saw the color of his his lips, you know, matching the color of his skin, like all that, you know, I was, uh, that's when I got emotional and I got down and I, just, you know, I stopped trying to get him up and then I just got down and I just hugged him and fucking told him, you know, I had my head against him and I was right in his ear just telling him how much that I loved him and, and I was sorry we were fighting. 
and hold our arm that help was coming. James died at the scene. It happened the night of his daughter Cameron's senior prom. This is a clip of an interview I did with her while working at 17 News. And I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to wake up in the morning and not think, like, was he scared? Like, was he scared when that person was shooting at the car? Like, what was going through his mind? Back then, the one-year anniversary of James's murder was approaching, and Cameron hoped to send a message to his killer. I want that person to look at me and see me. And, like, really see me, because that person took away everything from me. Going on one year, it seemed unimaginable then that an arrest hadn't been made yet. You would think that it would be just as plain and simple as the chiropractor said that he was going to call somebody to come and they were going to come strapped, you know, is the words that he used. And that's exactly what happened. But, you know, everything else didn't point to that. As Ryan said, it seemed the case was open and shut. But as time went on with no arrests, people started pondering other theories. One involved Sarah G, the Sarah that Micah had been hanging out with before he went missing, who was also there the night that James was killed. First, there was talk that someone killed Micah over his relationship with Sarah G. And then Ryan was told James may have been killed over her too. It was over some checks and over Sarah. I'm like, over Sarah? Like, really? As it turns out, Ryan also had some involvement with her. Though Ryan says Sarah G quickly blew him off. We hooked up, and then I tried to, like, hang out with her again. And then she kind of, like, just, you know, and I felt like a chick. Like, I feel so used. Ryan says James never told him that he also hooked up with Sarah G. But it's been a longtime rumor that most people say is true. I think I even asked Sarah, too. I'm like, come on, you could tell me. And she's like, no, no, you know. But other people are convinced that they did. So there was that theory that possibly both Micah and James were killed by a jealous boyfriend of Sarah G's. But it didn't stop there. Theories kept coming. People started thinking... The case must not be as straightforward as it looks on the surface. There must be something more to it. Maybe it wasn't an ambush by a stranger over money. James would have never, at one o'clock in the morning, pulled behind a car that he did not know. Even being in a safe neighborhood. Whoever was parked there, he knew. It's a question that started to drive some of James's loved ones crazy. The constant wondering who and why. Now, more than five years later, James's daughter Cameron has tried to adopt a new outlook. I just, I had, I had gotten to the point where I cared so much about who that person was that I was losing sight in who my dad was. They already took that person from me, so I can't let them take the memories too. I have to remember all the good things. There's so much more to unpack about James's murder and how it may or may not tie into the disappearances of Bailey and Micah. But for now, I want to focus on the way Cameron remembers her father. 
How today as a young woman, she realizes she is who she is because of him. So if I could only talk to him one more time, I would just tell him thank you over and over again. I think about him when I look at the stars. I think about him when I hear birds chirping. I think about him when I hear ocean sounds. I think about him when I see strawberries because he always brought me them. There's all these reminders and there's so many memories. A little editor's note, when I interviewed James's brother Ryan in January 2022, he was in a dark place. I just want to fucking numb myself from reality. He told me that day he was using fentanyl, the number one cause of overdose deaths. Unable to afford rehab, Ryan thought getting clean was hopeless. But a few months after that interview, completely on his own, Ryan got sober. As of this writing, he's been clean for over a year and a half. Next time on The Bakersfield Three. You're going to end up either dead or you're going to go missing. That was the last I ever spoke to her. And now a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project. And every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for the year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions such as, are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover? And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, the Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, 
and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.